Latin American people experience violence above all as the air we breathe, as the bread that we cannot put into the mouths of our children, as the idleness imposed by unemployment, as the cardboard or tin houses that each new torrential rainfall washes away and buries, as the naked and ragged bodies of our children, as the despair of living without health, as the institutional block that does violence to life and snatches away the joy of the future. That was Juan Hernández Pico, Jesuit priest and author of the article Revolution, Violence, and Peace, the topic of today's show. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. A shorter episode is coming your way today. It's summer, what can I say? But uh, nonetheless, a crucial topic, Revolution, Violence, and Peace by Juan Hernández Pico. And Pico is a Basque Jesuit priest born in 1936, formed in theology in Germany and in sociology at the University of Chicago. He's given his life to pastoral work alongside poor communities in Central America. One of his key writings is The Theology of Christian Solidarity, co-authored with John Sabrino and published by Orbis in English in 1985. There'll be four parts to today's show. First, we'll look at the reality of historical conflict as a starting point for Pico's approach to revolution, violence, and peace. Then we'll consider a few biblical points on the topic, after which we'll examine two 20th century church sources. And finally, as a practical point for many listeners in education, whether teachers or students, I'll share some highlights from my recent book chapter, Teaching Methods for Liberation, from the book Decolonial Pedagogy. Let's start with some conflict. One of my college professors, Dr. Stephen Boyd, told me a story about an event he attended where Gustavo Gutierrez was the main speaker. At the end of Gutierrez's talk, someone from the crowd asked, Why do you justify violence in your writings? People are using your words to carry out violent revolutions. Jesus does not want violence. Jesus wants peace. To which Gutierrez responded, what about the violence that the poor suffer every day? What about the structural violence that oppresses constantly? What you call violence is resistance to the great systemic violence constantly afflicted on the masses. And Gustavo's point is a good one, a historical one, and a dialectical one. Conflict and violence already are. Revolutionary resistance does not emerge from a blank slate, from a level playing field. It is a response to systemic injustice, to repression, to a state of affairs that kills, sometimes quickly, as we've just seen in Paris with the police shooting of Nahel, a 17-year-old of Algerian heritage, and sometimes slowly, as I witnessed in Honduras with mine workers whose blood was poisoned by lead, cyanide, and mercury. 
Given this fatal situation, there are three sorts of possible responses. One, actively reinforcing the systemic violence of the ruling class. Two, doing nothing, which amounts to passively reinforcing the systemic violence of the ruling class. Or three, resisting it. To simply promote peace is to accept the rules of a game that are unfair. That's why Pico writes, quote, Tranquility, stability, and conciliation are, in these circumstances, suspicious for liberation theology because they cover up the open veins of the majority of our smallest brothers in Jesus Christ. End quote. And later he continues, quote, There is a place for reconciliation, but reconciliation entails the recognition of the conflict and a choice in the face of it that leads to surpassing it. End quote. There is no way around the conflict. Jesus does not ultimately avoid Jerusalem. He sets his face towards it. He demands conversion, change, transformation. Pico writes, quote, Conflict and the unrest it produces are the method, the way for that conversion. End quote. Conflictive, profoundly transformative conversion on the societal scale is what we call revolution. And Pico names four of its aspects. One, the demand for a fundamentally new reality. Two, the demand for a crucial rupture with the foundations, the constitution of the past. Three, the revindication of liberty, of political participation for the masses. And four, the instrumental project of a new social justice, national and international. Herein lies the difference between progress or reformism and revolution. Revolution seeks rupture with the constitutive foundation of present society, but progress seeks to merely adjust this constitutive foundation. Why did many poor Latin Americans in the second half of the 20th century opt for revolution over reform? Pico writes, quote, The poor have tried to arrive at their project by peaceful paths, and their energies have been spent in building much more than in destroying. But the established order has denied them the fruits of their victories, including when these have been won by means of a scrupulous following of the rules of the game of the system. The examples of Guatemala in 1954 and of Chile in 1973 speak to this. End quote. When the oppressed masses gain power through democratic means in the liberal democratic system, extremely repressive, violent military coups against their victories were the result. These devastating experiences led many Latin Americans to opt for guerrilla warfare in a cry resembling that of Patrick Henry during the American Revolution, give me liberty or give me death. It was this sort of resistance that produced some victories, namely in Cuba in 1959 and in Nicaragua in 1979, and to a different degree in Venezuela, attempted with the leadership of Hugo Chavez in 1992 and won through the electoral system with him in 1998. Pico writes that, yes, Christians should always be critical of the excesses of revolutionary movements, but at a basic level, Christians should regard these movements with a presupposition of benevolence to the extent that they represent and actualize the hope of the poor for a fundamentally new reality free from domination. 
Now let's turn to a few insights from the Bible about revolution, peace, and violence. First, Pico wants to be clear and upfront. Quote, the Bible says literally nothing about revolution. What it says must be searched for spiritually, end quote. Indeed, sections of the Old and New Testament treat in various ways subversions of established authority. But what Pico means is that revolution, as understood in the 19th and 20th centuries, is simply not a phenomenon that the Bible addresses. And it cannot address it. We cannot expect sacred documents from the first century and before in the Middle East to speak directly to Latin American social reality today. Yet, we can observe some general patterns. For one, Pico notes that, quote, the prophets combat false peace based on the dominion of oppression that's proclaimed by the palace prophets who are complacent with oppressive authority, end quote. And he cites here Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, quote, they have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, end quote. Without doubt, the prophets rail against any conception of peace that's not based on justice, and many prophets pay dearly for their opposition to false peace. Later, Pico considers Jesus, concentrating on Jesus' power. Yes, Jesus was meek and humble, but he was also, quote, powerful in deeds and words, end quote, from Luke chapter 26, verse 19, and Christians often miss that point. Jesus was tender, but he also whipped merchants in the temple. He was gentle, but he also did not hesitate to call powerful folks hypocrites to their faces. Curiously, Pico remarks, the only partisan affiliation that Jesus did not openly criticize were the zealots, those Jews who were revolting against the Romans in the name of God, their only ruler. Jesus even recruited Simon the Zealot to be his disciple, and similar to the Zealots, assured the primacy of God's authority over Roman authority. However, different from the Zealots, Jesus was not hoping to establish a Jewish national state, but a universal reign of God. And Jesus took a longer view of revolution that went beyond adventurist, futile acts of terror. The movement of Jesus was certainly subversive nonetheless. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 26, Then comes the end, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. End quote. This citation demonstrates that before the end, there will be the destruction of every ruler, every authority, every power. There is a certain Christian anarchism that emerges from this passage. The growth of the reign of God in history is a movement towards a radical equality under God, towards the erasure of every form of domination of some over others. It's for Christians to discern in the spirit the appropriate tactics of resistance according to the signs of the times and under the leadership of the poor the owners of the new reign according to the Beatitudes. Pico takes into account not only these patterns that arise in Scripture, but also those that come up in church history. Though he hits the highlights from several periods, I want to focus on two quotes from the 20th century. The first is from Pope Pius XI, who addressed in his encyclical Firmissimam Constantium, from 1937, the situation in Mexico, with the following words that I'll cite. This is from paragraph 27. 
You have more than once recalled to your faithful that the church protects peace and order, even at the cost of grave sacrifices, and that it condemns every unjust insurrection or violence against constituted powers. On the other hand, among you it has also been said that wherever these powers arise against justice and truth, even to destroying the very foundations of authority, it is not to be seen how those citizens are to be condemned who unite to defend themselves and the nation by licit and appropriate means against those who make use of public power to bring it to ruin. End quote. Pius XI then distinguishes two types of insurrections, unjust and just. A just use of violence is one that defends the foundations of justice and truth. So it is for citizens to discern, under contexts of oppression, when this oppression has reached such an extreme point of injustice and falsity that physical force is an appropriate response. A similar sort of statement and line of reasoning can be found in a joint declaration of the World Council of Churches in the Pontifical Commission of Justice and Peace signed in Beirut, in 1968, quote, Revolutions are possible without the use of force. All our efforts should be directed towards achieving change peacefully. However, when the right to use, that is the use of violence, is rooted in the status quo and those who maintain it do not permit any change, human conscience can lead people to a violent revolution as a last resort, clearly accepting full responsibility without hate and resentment. A grave culpability then weighs on those who opposed the change. End quote. This declaration stresses the necessity of honestly trying to create change without recourse to physical force before taking up arms. It also accentuates human conscience, a recurring topic throughout the history of Catholic moral teaching. Catholics have a duty to inform their consciences, but Catholics should always follow their consciences. For instance, when one's conscience leads one to join a resistance movement that employs force to overthrow an unjust regime. There's a solid precedent for violent revolution in Catholic social teaching, but this way of proceeding is not to be undertaken lightly, but only as a last resort with acceptance of full responsibility and with the prohibition of any violence of revenge. So here, very briefly, I've hit the highlights of Pico's chapter, but I'd recommend picking it up yourself. It, it really is a quick read. It's thought-provoking. It's moving and inspiring. And if you read it, please do send me your feedback on Twitter or email. I'd love to hear what you think. So in the last section of this episode, I want to share some insights from my book chapter, Teaching Methods for Liberation, which can be found in the recently published book, Ignite, A Decolonial Approach to Higher Education Through Space, Place, and Culture, which is published by Vernon Press in their series in education, edited by Laura M. Pipe from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and Jennifer T. Stevens from Elon University. So my chapter in here is chapter 11, Teaching Methods for Liberation, Practical Insights from Liberation Theology. Doctors uh, Pipe and Stevens had invited me after reading something that I had written to reflect on my pedagogy, especially as informed by liberation theology. 
And so this is what inspired this chapter. And I begin by outlining my personal engagement with liberation theology and also an overview of liberation theology. Listeners to this podcast would already be familiar with that, so I'll jump right into the content, which begins with what is the problem with the dominant mode of higher education pedagogy? And essentially what it is is a version of the critique of Paulo Freire, who wrote in 1970, Narration, whose subject is the educator, leads the educated to the mechanical memorization of narrated content. What is more, narration transforms the educated into vessels, into recipients that should be filled by educators. The more that they fill their recipients with contents, the better educators they will be, end quote. And this is what Freire calls the banking conception. So the teacher selects the course materials, the teacher teaches the course materials, the students who can best regurgitate what the teacher says are those who find success. And I think this is more or less my experience with with secondary education and also higher education to a lesser degree was which student can best adopt the perspective of the professor, that is the student who's going to find success in class. And I remember even sometimes wanting to be successful so bad in high school and college that I would not challenge the views of my teachers because I knew that that would lead me into trouble. And only as I continued to progress through my education would I become more and more confident in sharing views that contradicted those of my professors and even critiquing the ways sometimes that courses were taught in what I considered to be an oppressive fashion. So, however, when I began teaching at Xavier University, I found that given that that was my experience with education, I was imitating many of the things that I had learned through this banking conception. So in my ethics classes, I was choosing the texts. I was more or less dictating to the class uh, what needed to be learnt, and the students who best absorbed that were the ones who were the most successful. And of course, this is unjust. And in time, I came to realize that this approach was not fitting with my views on liberation. And so we needed to make some changes. So this book describes four of the main changes that I adopted uh, based on four approaches from liberation theology. So the first one has to do with this question. How can professors and students empower each other to become unalienated mutual owners of the means of their academic production? With a developed response, students work with professors to choose their course materials. And that's precisely what I had done in time. In the later versions of my courses on ethics and political philosophy and film, I would give students a list of many different options of texts that we could read from diverse populations and diverse time periods. And students would vote on those texts, and the ones that the students wanted to read are those that we would read. And if it were the case that students really only wanted to read texts from one particular tradition or location, then I would encourage them to have a more diverse uh, set of readings for the class, though generally speaking, students uh, naturally selected many diverse texts according to their interests, and uh, <laughs> though it's, it's hard to believe, uh, or maybe not, uh, when students themselves are involved in the process of selecting the texts that they want to read for an ethics class or a political philosophy class, they're naturally more interested and take ownership of both the material and their personal engagement with the material. So that's one thing that I had implemented that I found some success with. 
The next one is how can professors and students move away from private interest towards the common good?、Uh, with the response being group projects replace individual exams. And multiple times on this podcast, I have hit home Juan Luis Segundo's point on the test mentality of salvation. The goal is to pass the test successfully. That is,、uh, we show up at the pearly gates, and there's going to be a test. That if we have done the appropriate things and believe the appropriate things, then we'll pass the test. We'll get into heaven. Versus a project mentality, which is an alternative understanding of salvation. Love is not a test. Love is a project. And this project is the reign of God, and so as opposed to seeing heaven as something to be attained in liberation theology, we see the reign of God as something that we co-construct with God, humanity, and nature throughout history,、uh, which certainly goes beyond my existence、uh, on Earth, which is why it's a generational and, and historical project, which also recapitulates all people throughout history. Who have participated in doing good, which is doing the will of God. So I found that、uh, students and I would develop projects.、Uh, one of the projects in my political philosophy class, for example, was we would read、um, some texts from political philosophy with the goal of, at the end of the semester, developing as a project for the class a new constitution for a society similar to that of the United States. So students can use what they would they had learned in the class or not in the construction. Of Of an important project, which would be the important project, in my opinion, of recreating a U.S. society,、uh, refashioning a new constitution, very similar to what had been stated in this episode today. That's what liberation and revolution is. It's、uh, changing the foundations, the constitutive components of our society, so that we can have a radically new and just society. So, getting students thinking about what that is and engaging with philosophical traditions that have already considered this question. Is a very helpful way, I think, of studying political philosophy. Next point number three. I'm just flipping through the pages of the text here. Is how can professors assign grades in a post-test classroom environment, which is students agree on grading expectations and assess themselves. One of the key points in liberation theology is that. The oppressed are to become agents of their own destiny, and I can't tell you how many times、uh, throughout high school and college I would say a third of the time I would receive a grade that was higher than what I thought I would get, and then you're just kind of happy. Then a third of the time you get what you wanted and thought you were going to get, and then maybe a third of the time I would get a grade that was lower than what I thought I would get, and perplexed. And so, can we create a new classroom environment in which students and teachers together develop what are the criteria upon which we're going to be success、uh, we're going to be assessed? And、uh, again, I think this similarly matches、uh, an important concept of liberative philosophy, which is human beings are are co-creators. With God, and so we should define,、uh, of course, informed by revelation and by reason, what are the standards of justice that we want for our society, and so what are also the standards of a just, appropriate assignment for a student. Constantly revisiting that as、uh, the construction of our society is a project, and the construction of our classroom. Is a project too that we can revisit and alter according to need. Fourth point was how can professors and students create classes that reflect on experiences of solidarity with the oppressed? 
And I speak about three methods. One is Ignatian, the Ignatian pedagogical paradigm. The other one, community-engaged learning, and then uh, collaborative online international learning. And then just in general, liberation-forward class materials. So one of the things that I had developed, I would encourage people to look into this, uh, is COIL, Collaborative Online International Learning. And this is where, for some of my Spanish classes, uh, we had co-classes with students from Venezuela and Ecuador. Part of these Spanish classes would be students from each country would share what are the important uh, societal topics that are in play in each of their countries, how is government structured in each of their countries, and they would develop basically different modes of uh, representing these differences and similarities, not in order to criticize each other, but to learn different models of what a society and political structure can look like. And then also, I would say there is the sense in which also teachers can propose to students texts and movies and other engaging course materials that have to do with the subject of liberation itself. So one of the things I would do also in my Spanish classes at Xavier was to, in our unit on Central American culture, we would watch movies that had to do with revolutionary struggles and the armed conflicts that were taking place in Central America in the second half of the 20th century so that students can have an opportunity to learn about, especially the United States' role in those conflicts and be more informed about the history of U.S. foreign policy so that we cannot repeat those mistakes of uh, brutal interventionism against a revolutionary movements heading into the future. So I would encourage uh, listeners to pick up this book. It, I'm just one chapter of many chapters in this book, which are uh, worthy of amazing reflection, very thought-provoking. I was asked to review one of the chapters, uh, which had to do with indigenous pedagogy from a professor in occupied territory in Canada. And so there's so much good that comes from this text. I would encourage people to, uh, to pick it up. There will be a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Let us finish with a poem prayer by Ernesto Cardenal, which is entitled Our Poems. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our poems still cannot be published. They circulate from hand to hand as manuscripts or photocopies for a day. The name of the dictator against whom they were written, will be forgotten, and they will continue to be read. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.